Hello and welcome back to the State of Education presented by One Room Education. I'm Katie and today I'll be your guide as we do something a little bit different than the, my usual presentations. So I had something completely different planned for today, but it just was not going to be ready in time for you. And as always, I want to make sure that you have the best quality content I can possibly provide. So instead of my usual presentations, today I'm going to be pulling up a couple of articles and we're going to be discussing the topics within those articles and my candid thoughts on those topics. If you enjoy this sort of content, please make sure to head over to my socials and let me know over there. So come on in and have a seat while we discuss equity or equality, which is actually better. Okay. So today is going to be a little more informal than my normal presentations. I have a couple of articles pulled up and a couple other things that I'm going to be discussing with you. If you enjoy this topic or this general format, please make sure to let me know over on social medias or over on the show notes at one-roomeducation.com. That way I know what you like and what direction you would like this podcast to go in. So the topic of today's discussion is going to be equity versus equality. Now, equity is a term that I'm going to be referring to quite often in the episodes that are coming up here in the very near future. And I thought if I'm going to be talking about it a lot, why don't I just go ahead and do an episode on it? Because it's really important to understand the difference between equity and equality whenever you're talking about education especially today because the amount of legislation that's coming out and has come out in the past like three, two or three years, it hasn't even really been that long, that includes specifically the word equity as a replacement for the word equality is staggering. And it's not just at a federal level, it's also at a state level. So it's really important for us to understand the definitions of the words that are being used in the current culture and how those words are being used to understand how we can either support it or combat it, depending on what your stance is. So if we're going to be talking about the two terms, equity and equality today, and the differences between the two, I thought that it was important to define those two terms from the get-go. So to keep everything fair, I'm using the same dictionary resource for both definitions. So the dictionary I'm using is the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, and I will make sure to link everything in the description and over in the show notes and resources over at one-roomeducation.com as I do with every other episode of the State of Education podcast. So the definition of equality is where we're going to start first. And Merriam-Webster's online resource defines equity as, quote, justice according to natural law or right specifically, freedom from bias or favoritism. Okay, I can, I can agree with that. And then definition 1B is, quote, something that is equitable. Okay, that would make sense that that equity is included under equitable. So let's go ahead and go over to equitable on MiriamWebster.com and see what the definition is of equitable. 
So the definition of the word equitable, according to Merriam-Webster, is, quote, having or exhibiting equity, dealing fairly and equally with all concerned, unquote. Now, this is something that drives me absolutely, just absolutely insane, okay? And Merriam-Webster especially has been doing this lately because Merriam-Webster's dictionary tends to, um, it tends to evolve with the cultural colloquial uses of words a lot quicker than, say, the Oxford Standard, Standard English Dictionary, which is what I tend to use. So what they've been doing, I don't know if you noticed this, in the definition for the word equitable, they use the word equity. And in the definition for the word equity, they use the word equitable. So they use both terms to define each other, but they don't necessarily really define the terms separate from each other, which means that it's a circular definition. So you don't really completely understand what either of the words mean, and you don't completely understand the difference between the two words. So if they're the same word, why don't they have, why aren't they part of the same entry? Anyways, they do this with quite a few of the words that are used, I would say rampantly within the cultural left, but that's not the point of this episode. (laughs) So for our purposes, we're going to define equity as the definition 1A, according to Merriam-Webster, which is, quote, justice according to natural law or right specifically, freedom from bias or favoritism, unquote. Okay, freedom from bias or favoritism. That sounds really, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good end goal. So then what is equality? Well, according to merriamwebster.com again, the definition of equality is, quote, the quality or state of being equal. So we're going to do the same thing that we did with equity, and we're going to go ahead and go from equality to the word equal to make sure that we fully understand the definition, okay? So according to Merriam-Webster, the definition of of equal, 1A1, is, quote, of the same measure, quality, amount, or number as another. Definition 1B, according to Merriam-Webster for equal, is, quote, like in quality, nature, or status. And definition 1C is, quote, like for each member of a group, class, or society, unquote. So now that we've thoroughly defined equity, and equality. Let's go ahead and look at some of the ways that these two words are being viewed within the educational sphere and which one is being favored currently in education and why. The first article we're going to be looking at is from waterford.org. It's called Why Understanding Equity Versus Equality in Schools Can Help You Create an Inclusive Classroom. It is from May 2nd of 2020. 
So like I said in the beginning, the term equity has been creeping in for two to three years heavily in education. And once you look into it a little bit, you realize that the term inclusive classroom is being replaced by an equitable classroom or equity within the classroom. Now, when I was going to college in the late 2000s, we were taught about inclusive classrooms and inclusive education and equal education opportunities for all students. And that's what we were more pushed towards. So when I realized that the equity was being used as a new term, essentially for inclusive classroom, it made a little bit more sense where people are coming from. However, I do have to say before I start reading this article from waterford.org that this is one of those cases where it is great in theory and I think the intentions are probably pure in the case of the actual educators, but the way that these policies and these ideas are implemented by the majority of teachers and districts as a whole, it doesn't quite reflect the original purpose and original thought behind the idea. So let's go ahead and dig into this article from waterford.org. So I'm going to say right at the start that I actually kind of find myself agreeing with almost everything that this article says. However, as with most things that I say that about, there's a but to that. I agree with almost everything that this article says, but I disagree with their conclusion and their way of going about achieving their end goals. So this article starts off by saying this, quote, the quality of education that students receive directly correlates to their quality of life years down the road. Early education in particular has the power to shape a child's future and the more resources available to them, the better. For this reason, it's crucial for educators to address any barriers young students face to succeed in school, unquote. Now, I, of course, 100% agree with this. Why would I not agree that the more resources you have for students, the better off they're going to be in the long run because the more skills they'll learn and the more barriers a student has, the more barriers the school system needs to remove to ensure that they have access to an equal educational opportunity. So yeah, okay, I get that. I completely 100% agree with that. The article continues, quote, the key is equity. Equity means offering individual support to students that addresses possible barriers like poverty or limited transportation. 97% of teachers agree that equity is important, but many don't know how to best work towards it in their classrooms. But once educators have the right strategies to promote equity in schools, they can make sure that each student is prepared to reach their potential, unquote. 
Okay, so yeah, I agree with that. So poverty and limited transportation. I don't know. I literally don't know one teacher that would disagree with that statement, which is reflected by the 97% of teachers agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. So this article mostly talks about primary education. So that's your elementary school age kids. I have mentioned a couple times, I think, that I am a secondary social studies teacher. So my specialty is in late adolescent and teenage behaviors and education and development. So I'm going to go ahead and read these articles and then I'm going to give you my viewpoint from my professional opinion. And I'm going to give you some anecdotal stories that I have for my professional career as well. This article moves on to talk about the main differences between equity and equality. And it states, quote, when it comes to equity versus equality in education, the terms are often used interchangeably. But understanding the distinction between the two is essential for resolving issues faced by disadvantaged students in the classroom. While working toward equity and equality can both do good, equity should be an educator's end goal. The reason lies in the difference between being fair and being equal. Equity is more commonly associated with social issues, perhaps because more people know what it means. In a nutshell, Its definition is as it sounds, the state of being equal. When a group focuses on equality, everyone has the same rights, opportunities, and resources. Equality is beneficial, but it often doesn't address specific needs. Giving each student a take-home laptop, for example, would not address students who don't have internet in their houses. Even if a school is equal, some students may still struggle, unquote. Now, this is 100% true because when I was teaching in public schools, several of the schools that I was working with provided laptops for their students. They provided after-school tutoring for free. They provided after-school transportation for some of the activities. And all of this stuff was provided for them. But it wasn't seen as an equity thing. It wasn't seen as an equity issue. It was seen as just providing resources for students that needed them. And I also want to note that just because you provide something to a student population doesn't mean that they are equipped to deal with those advantages. So as I stated, I was in college in the late 2000s. In 2009, 2010 school year is when I did my field experience and my student teaching. And I was a classroom substitute and long-term sub. And one of the things that was sort of a recurring issue right then was this idea of sending laptops home with students. So these schools that were barely scraping by funding wise, they would get a grant or they would put the money out from their budget and they would purchase these laptops and all the students could take them home with them. But what was happening was these students 
didn't take care of them. I mean, have you ever seen a textbook in a public high school? A high school or a elementary school from an economically depressed area? Those things are tore up. They are written in. They are just, it's sad. It's a sad state most of the textbooks are in. And the exact same thing started happening with these laptops. They would have cracked screens. They would have missing parts. They would have, they would just be completely broke. Um, They would completely change the coding on some of them just for a joke. Like, it was absolutely ridiculous the disrespect that these kids had for the equipment that was being provided for them free of cost. And so they quit sending the laptops home with the kids because they were getting more of them broke than not. And then some kids were complaining that they couldn't do their homework if they didn't have those laptops. But what's the school supposed to do, right? You can't send each kid home with a laptop based on what their behavioral history, because then you have all these other kids that actually could use it, but they just don't have the respect for the equipment and what's being provided for them and their parents don't care. So they don't have the homework done and they don't have the means to do it. So what do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to send a private tutor home with them to make sure that they don't bust up the laptop to complete their homework? I don't know what you want to do. That's just, that's just my general take on that, that yeah, that's a great pie in the sky hope, but it's just, it's not really feasible. The article from waterford.org continues, equity, on the other hand, provides people with resources that fit their circumstances. The World Health Organization, WHO, definition of social equity is, quote, the absence of avoidable or remittable differences among groups of people, unquote. Schools that provide equity versus equality are more in tune to their students' needs and provide resources to overcome their specific challenges, end quote. Now, yes, I absolutely agree with this. However, what I don't agree with is that the school needs to provide every single thing to every single student. This comes down to the whole, like I said earlier, there's this struggle between the words equity and equality. Now, in my view... If you've listened to any episodes of the State of Education so far, you can probably guess where I stand. My view is always with equality because equality means that all the students have access to all of the resources. So what this means is that the students that have the benefit of having a good family environment and loving parents who support what they're doing and are able to do their homework in a quiet environment, have access to the same resources as the kid who is going home and watching three or four younger siblings while their parent goes to a third job that week to try to make ends meet. That's what equality is. Now, what happens is these groups try to take the word equitable and they say, Equitable is more important than equal because of the circumstances of the individual students. Now, if you are a teacher who is a classroom teacher who is actually good at your job, you run your classroom what they would consider equitable anyways. 
So what that means is that you look at the students as individual people. You look at them as individual beings, not as a whole group. Where this idea of an equitable classroom falls apart and isn't taken into account with articles such as this one, as well intended as it may be, is when you look at a teacher that has eight periods in a day, okay, eight 52 minute periods, I think is what it ends up being. You have 52 minutes with 30 kids each period. How are you supposed to be able to address every single individual student as that individual unique learner that they are? Yes, I absolutely agree with the premise of it, but in practicality, it is not feasible. It is strictly not feasible within the current education system within the United States. And they keep doing this. They do it over and over and over again. They keep coming up with these great ideas and they, they find what the problem is. In this case, it would be not addressing the individual needs of students, but instead treating them as a group. So yes, that's the actual issue. But the problem is, how are you going to do that for 30 students at one time, seven to eight times a day? You as the teacher can't be held responsible for that. There's no way. There is no way. I am a great teacher and I have other great teachers that are friends of mine and we do our best to make sure that our students are taken care of and that each circumstance is taken into account. And if we know that a student has something going on, we try to connect them with the right resources to help them with that. But we can't be expected to do that for, for, for 240 kids a day. We can't, there, the sheer numbers don't add up. Well, that's a great idea for a classroom of maybe 10, 15 max per period. That's a great idea. But you put more than that in a classroom and it's unfeasible. And what you do is you take this idea of equity and you put it into a urban classroom where you have 30 plus students per period and you say, okay, teacher, make it work. Like, seriously, that is just, mm, that's unfair to the teacher and it's unfair to the students. So if you have equality where all the students know what their resources are and the school itself is supposed to be responsible for identifying issues, then that's a little bit more feasible, right? You don't just, you can't address every single student for each individual specific need. It just, like I said, the numbers don't make it possible. Addressing this very issue, the waterford.org article continues with challenges involving equity and equality in schools. They say, quote, barriers to an inclusive education can affect groups based on race, gender, and many other factors. The issues are not only who is being targeted, but also how we try to resolve them. In terms of equity versus equality in the classroom, most schools focus on horizontal equity. The definition of horizontal equity in education is treating people who are already assumed equal in the same way. Unquote. Now, you can probably already guess, I don't have a problem with this. I assume that all students are starting on an equal level and equal footing. 
in my classrooms when I work with students on an individual basis. I assume that they have a basic level of knowledge. And anything that has to do with their life outside of my classroom, I address as it begins to visibly affect their grades and their focus within my classroom. That's when I start to address stuff that goes on outside of my classroom with individual students. And especially on a secondary level, that's sort of how just how we should address it, in my opinion, because it makes it it does it makes it a more equitable classroom. I was teaching a class in an alternative education school, and the principal told me that I should read all of the IEPs because I only had one student that didn't have IEPs and that I should read all of their criminal records and why half of them had um, ankle bracelets on. And I told her I would take the information home with me and I would review it as necessary. And I had the only classroom in that building that had behaviors that were actually being addressed that had behaviors that were actually improving throughout my tenure in that classroom because I didn't treat the students as pre-existing problems and pre-existing issues. I didn't go into the classroom with pre-existing notions about how these children were or how they should behave. I went in and I said, hi, my name's Miss Katie and this is how I'm going to run the classroom. Everyone will be evaluated on the same basis and everybody, if you have an issue with something, come and talk to me. Otherwise, class will continue as normal. I expect your behavior to be within these parameters and if they're not, here are the consequences. They will be divvied out equally. Everybody heard what was going on and what was understood what I expected behaviorally and academically within my classroom and What really, really made the difference was when I backed up what I said. When I said that everybody would be treated equally in my classroom under this set of rules, I meant it. And when I was able to prove to gang members and country kids that they really were equal in my eyes and that they weren't some idiots and lost causes that they were students of mine and I saw their potential. When they saw that and that I was absolutely fair and equal in my distribution of praise and punishment, that's when you gain a student's respect and when the student gains respect for themselves, again in my case, or they develop that self-respect for the first time if you're looking at elementary or primary school. And personally, I think that that's how that should be done. And I feel that that would be kind of under the horizontal equity, according to this article. So let's go ahead and continue to read, though. So the article continues, quote, Horizontal equity is only useful in homogenous schools, where each person is really given the same opportunities in life. But in most schools, students will come from a variety of backgrounds, some more privileged than others. 
For this reason, educators should focus on vertical equity, which assumes that students have different needs and provides individual resources based on said needs, unquote. Now, that sounds extremely similar to what I just described, how I run my classrooms, whether it's at an alternative school, like I had described just previously, or whether it's in a regular urban type school, whether it's in a suburban school or a rural school district, it doesn't matter. I treat every single classroom of students that I have ever encountered the exact same way. It doesn't matter if it's an advanced placement class, whether it's a homeschooling group, or whether it's a special education class where the kids can barely figure out what we're doing. It doesn't matter. I have the same set of rules and I set expectations high yet realistic for the group of children that I'm working with. And I've had extremely varied backgrounds within my classrooms. I've had racially diverse. I've had culturally diverse. I've had economically diverse classrooms. And guess what? If you treat every single student as if they are a person and as if you see them equally as your student and that you are invested in them as an individual and their success, they 100% will rise to that occasion every single time. And that's what's missing. And that's what I find sad about this idea of equity. It's that these people assume that because you come from a lower income background or because you come from a certain cultural or racial background or because you're a female instead of a male or whatever, that you innately have a lesser footing within the educational culture. And that that is just, that way of thinking is so perverted to my mind and the way that I view the world and the way that the people that I work with and the students that I work with view the world, it creates the problem that you're trying to fix. The solution is easy. You don't have to come up with a bunch of fancy words or a bunch of new programs or anything. It's easy. Teach your teachers how to treat their students equally within the classroom. Don't have a teacher's pet. Don't favor children specifically in front of the other children. Does every teacher have a favorite? Absolutely. We are people. People have favorite things, no matter what that is, whether that's a student, whether it's a best friend, whether it's a favorite piece of pizza. It doesn't matter. It's innate human nature to favor one over another. Now, what happens is that we as teachers, it is our mandate that we have to overcome this general human nature and treat every single student as equals. And then you don't have this problem. But the problem is that that requires teachers and educators to be better than themselves. And that is the problem within society in general as I see it. It's not necessarily a lack of understanding as to everybody should be equal and everybody should have equal opportunities within systems and equal access to opportunities. That's not the problem. The problem is whenever people come in and they say, you know what, Kate, because you're a woman, P 
people think that you can do less than a man. People think that you're worth 77 cents instead of a dollar, according to whatever outdated statistics these people are using. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the issue. Whenever other people tell you what they think your limitations should be, that's the problem. So you as an educator, whether it's a homeschool parent, whether it's a public educator, whether it's an administrator, whether you are a college professor, it is your job to treat your students equally and hold them to an equal standard within that class. If you're teaching special ed, hold them to a high special ed standard. If they, you're teaching an AP class, hold them to a college level standard within their skill set. If they don't know something, then it's your job as the teacher and as the educator to make sure that they gain those skills. When I work with students who don't know how to do research on their own whenever they're a senior in high school, guess what? That's the first thing that we address. I don't assume that they know how to do research because a lot of them, that just kind of gets skipped over because of high stakes testing, which don't worry, we'll be talking about in future episodes. But if you see that a student has an issue or has a deficiency somewhere, it's your job as an educator to try to help with that as much as possible. And if you as the individual educator can't fix that or can't address it, then it's your job to refer someone that can. I don't understand why this idea is so confusing to people within the educational community. I think it's one of those things where we're just, we're coming up with different terms and all saying the same thing. And we're going about solving the same issue that we're seeing just in different ways. This article from Waterford.org continues, quote, Another challenge facing equity versus equality in education is poverty. 60% of the most disadvantaged students come from under-resourced homes or communities. Because their families or schools might have very limited budgets, it can be difficult to provide these students with equitable resources. Additionally, these under-resourced communities often have trouble keeping educators who can make a difference. 62% of high-poverty schools report that it is challenging to retain high-quality teachers, unquote. And that's true. That's an issue. But why? It's because this stuff is being pushed on them and they're being forced to pay more attention to a kid's skin tone, where they're from, or anything other than what they're supposed to be teaching them within the classroom. Because I'm sorry, anything outside of the academic purview is not the responsibility of the teacher themselves. If it, inter if it starts to interfere with in-class instruction, then yeah, the teacher needs to stop and address whatever is going on whether it's with an individual student or whether it's with the group. But outside of that, it's not the teacher's job to make sure that everything's okay with each student. They can't, especially in the current public education system within the United States, because like I said, it's overburdened anyways, even in the smallest school districts. This article goes on and it has a quote, quote, according to Scholastic Teachers and Principals Report, these are a few additional barriers to equity in American schools. They list family crisis, mental health issues, lack of health care, coming to school hungry, homelessness or living in temporary shelter, still learning the English language. 
Okay. Yeah, sure. Every single one of those is something that needs to be addressed within the individual student. And as a teacher, it is currently your job to refer anyone that's having a family crisis, anyone that's having a mental health crisis, anyone that's having a hunger issue or anything like that. As educators in the United States, we're what's called mandated reporters. So if we see literally any of these things going on, it's our job. We have to, under penalty of law, we have to report this to at least the guidance counselors, if not social workers individually at Child Protective Services. In reference to still learning the English language, I agree that that's a barrier to education, but I feel that that is a completely, completely separate issue from the rest of the things that were listed there. And I don't think that it's fair to lump that in with everything else because I don't know if you know this, education is kind of nuanced, especially whenever it comes to the more, um, whenever it comes to the lower grade levels. Let's go ahead and finish up with this article from waterford.org. The next section from this article talks about the benefits of focusing on equity in education. And it talks about all of these flowers and butterflies and rainbows about how diversity of socioeconomic status and culture and race within a classroom creates higher test scores and all of that stuff. So I'm going to read you the summary, okay? Uh, To summarize this section, these are some of the benefits of focusing on equity in education. They list higher test scores, better health, stronger social atmosphere, longer life, and economic growth. Okay, I mean... Anyone that has strong social bonds and a strong social community, yeah, those are all benefits of them. So, okay, so we're trying to create a strong community as opposed to an equitable community? That's a little bit confusing, but whatever. So at the end of this article by waterford.org, They give tips for using equity to create an inclusive classroom. Quote, knowing the difference between equity and equality is the first step to creating a classroom where every child can succeed. From there, educators can take steps to better address the challenges faced by struggling students. Then they say, keep these five tips in mind for promoting equity in your classroom and helping every student succeed. One, remember that every child is different and has unique needs. Evaluate any challenges that students face and, if needed, offer support or resources. Which, as I stated earlier, is something that educators are supposed to do. But again, Because of the sheer number of students that each educator within the United States public school system and even the private school system, depending on where you are, makes it very, very difficult to do, if not straight out impossible. Number two, cultivate an environment in your classroom where every student feels heard. Encourage them to speak out against unfairness and let you know if they're facing any hardships at home or in class. Now, this one I actually do agree with because that's pretty much my general classroom management strategy. I give them all, I give all of my students what I expect of them, what I expect of myself, 
and what the repercussions of good and bad behavior or not meeting my expectations within the classroom will be. And then I apply that fairly. And if I make a mistake, I accept criticism and I'll apologize for it because as a teacher, you are a role model within the child's life or within the student's life if you're secondary or post-secondary. And you do have to model humility for them. And you can't just say, oh, I misspoke. I'm sorry. That's different than a behavioral thing that you were doing. If you start to show favoritism towards one student or the other, then maybe another student will call you out for that. And you'll get defensive at first. Every, it's human nature. Of course you will. But after you've taken a couple minutes to evaluate and really look at yourself to evaluate whether that's true or not, then you can address it. And the way that I like to address it within my classrooms is if the student's complaint is valid, then usually the issue has been, the problem has been committed publicly. So I will apologize and correct publicly. But if the student's accusations are false, then I will deal with those accusations for that student on an individual private basis. Because that's another mistake that teachers make a lot is that they'll take something that should be private and deal with it publicly and then vice versa. And it creates this kind of weird environment where students never know what's going on or why they're being punished or whatever. So yeah, I agree with number two. Number three. Parent engagement is a particularly helpful way to resolve challenges involving equity. Keep open communication with parents and encourage them to volunteer or attend school events to involve them with their child's education. Again, yes, that's a great idea. However, have you ever met a psychotic parent from your class? I have. I know my teaching friends have. (laughs) It is, it can be a real problem. And if you're having a disagreement with a student and you try to talk to one of their parents, a lot of times, the majority, I'm talking like nine times out of 10, that will backfire on you so bad because a lot of times the attitude or the issue with the student, you'll notice is a direct attitude or issue with the parent as well. So while parent engagement is particularly helpful in most cases, sometimes it's just, it's just not. And that's not really something that the education system can address at this point. The only thing we can do is work with the students currently in the system to try to make it so that they can be better parents. Number four, Provide equity training in schools for faculty members so teachers know how to resolve common barriers. Okay. Um, okay, yes, this is very important. Teachers need to know what the barriers to education are and how to resolve them. However, this is often addressed in a manner that I feel isn't necessarily intended. So we'll be addressing that here in just a minute. Number five and finally, the waterford.org article 
suggests to add diversity and inclusion activities, as well as lessons against prejudice to your school curriculum. So every student feels like they belong. Now, I take particular offense to this one because diversity and inclusion activities, as well as lessons against prejudice in your school curriculum, are absolutely absurd. I am sorry. Those topics don't need to be addressed on a curriculum basis. I am sorry. I don't care what school district you come from, what type of culture you come from, or anything like that. Those topics should be covered at home. And like I said earlier, if they begin to directly affect the learning environment within your classroom negatively, then you can address it. Because I've done that before. But you don't need to proactively address it. Because what happens is this type of stuff, the diversity and inclusion activities, as well as lessons against prejudice, quote unquote, takes up more instructional time than is actually necessary for it. And what it ends up doing is it ends up making students feel ostracized from the group. It makes students feel like they can't ask questions of each other. It makes students feel like they can't ask questions about somebody else's culture. If you have a student that is out on Christmas break and then another student that also had off for a Hanukkah break, you make students feel like the Christian kid that was out for Christmas can't ask the Jewish kid who was out for Hanukkah why he was out for a week and didn't get in trouble for it. You have to allow a safe space for students to address these differences in culture and heritage, as well as religious differences. It has to be a safe space for these conversations to happen, because if you don't have a safe space for these conversations to happen, and you do diversity and inclusive activities and lessons against prejudice, and you teach these kids that any questions of someone else's culture that might be deemed offensive by someone within that culture are not acceptable, what happens is it ends up increasing prejudice and increasing intolerance and decreasing diversity within communities. Trust me, I guarantee it you can look up some stats. Sorry, I get really heated about this because it is so misguided. So what I did was I pulled up a couple of different examples. What I did was I got on Pinterest. I'm not even going to lie. So I got on Pinterest and I looked up some diversity and inclusion lessons that you can do for students because don't lie, teachers. You know you get on Pinterest to find ideas. You know you do. <laughs> so I went where you go. I did not get on TPT. I'm sorry. I just did not have that kind of time today. So what I found was a good example and a, an example that I think kind of exemplifies the issue. So the first example is actually extremely similar to an activity that I do with my students at the beginning of almost every year. Because I teach social studies and because I teach history and world cultures and topics like that, it makes it very easy for me to include these sorts of 
um, these sorts of lessons, especially at the beginning of the year as like icebreakers or whatever. So the first one I have here, and I will have both of these worksheets linked at in the notes and resources over at one-roomeducation.com for you. And I'll also make sure that there is a link to that page down in the notes for this episode. So the first worksheet that I'm going to talk about is called My Culture and Traditions. The instructions for this worksheet say, use this worksheet to share more about your culture and the traditions of your family. And yes, I do use these on a secondary and post-secondary level because they're silly, they're fun, and they're icebreakers. So this worksheet has seven boxes on it, and each one is a different fact about you or your family. So the first one is languages spoken in my culture. So uh, my family is German and then English and English, Scotch-Irish. So... The main thing that we do in my family is German traditions. So languages spoken in my culture would be English and German. My favorite tradition from my culture. I love Christmas time. I really do. Germans, in my opinion, have like some of the best Christmas traditions ever. Foods that we eat. So everybody knows about kielbasa and kraut and Wiener schnitzel and all that stuff. Clothes worn in my culture. So I would talk about like traditional tracht or something like that. Holidays celebrated in my culture. So I could talk about the Christian side of Germanic and English culture, or I could talk about the pagan side of Germanic culture or the Druidic side of the British and Celt side. Then they have types of music we listen to. So that's, you know, whatever. Then they have other interesting facts. And that's this worksheet. It's just a little bit about you. It's a little bit about your family traditions. And it's really a great get to know you sort of worksheet. It's a dollar. I like it. If you're a teacher, I suggest it. And that's a good way to go about diversity and talking about different cultures. And then... There's this other one, which I was like, ooh, a word search. I love word searches. Ask anybody that knows me. I'm a sucker for a word search. Well, this one is called diversity definition word search. And then it just gives, everybody knows how to do word search, so I'm not going to read the instructions. So here are the words. It has the words listed and then the definition for the diversity definition words. And from the looks of this worksheet, it is meant for probably second grade and above. I'm not totally sure though, because there is no grade recommendation on the worksheet listing, but that would be my general, my general guess here. So the first word on this worksheet is diversity. And the definition for that is being different with an exclamation point. And they're super excited about it. The next word is acceptance. Understanding everyone is unique and recognizing our differences. Okay, I, sure. The next word is bias. Preferring one type of person over another and often treating them better. Okay, yes, that's true. But 
I feel like the elementary school audience that this worksheet is meant for can misinterpret that definition very easily because it's rather broad. The next definition is for identity. And they define that on this worksheet as different parts that make you who you are. Okay, I can go with that one. The next word is sexism. Believing that one sex, male, female, is better than another. Okay, so you're going to teach second plus graders about sexism. So when a boy goes up to you on the playground and says, boys rule and girls drool, is there a little girl that's going to scream you're sexist at the little boy? I mean, come on, people. Do we really need to be teaching them about this at this at that age? The next definition is culture, and that is a group of people with similar race, language, beliefs, food, ways of way of life, and other things. Yeah, that's a pretty straightforward, pretty straightforward thing. The next word is racism. Believing that one race is better than another. Okay. Discrimination. Treating others badly because they're different. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily a good definition, again, for this elementary school audience that this worksheet is meant for, because you have basic bullying would fall under their definition of discrimination, which I don't think is fair to elementary school students. The next word they have is stereotype, an assumption used to describe a group of people. Okay, yes, that's true. But again, should elementary school students, especially like second, third grade, as I would assume that this is that this worksheet is made for, even really be addressing terms like racism and stereotype? I don't think it's really necessary if you conduct your classroom the way that I have mentioned that I do and that most of the teachers that I know try to. The final word on this word search is inclusion making other people feel welcome and involved. Now that word, absolutely. You know, diversity, acceptance, inclusion, identity, culture. Yes, I believe that all of those things should be taught in your classroom, but I don't think you need a word search on it. You don't need to be shoving this stuff down your students' throats 24-7. And if you're trying to achieve one of these quote-unquote equitable classrooms, this is the kind of crap that your students are going to get every single week. Now, maybe not every single week, but at least once a month, I can almost guarantee you. Because especially if you're requiring it on a curriculum basis, which means it's built into your child's education on a fundamental level, especially if it's embedded into the curriculum. This is the kind of stuff that is required by teachers, whether you agree with it or not, to present to your students. Now, I and several other teachers that I know know ways to kind of skirt around this specific like blatant sort of stuff like the word search. But still, the fact is, we're a couple teachers. When the majority of teachers are bowing down to this sort of ideology, ideology within the classroom and imposing it upon your children and your students, you know, what, how do you expect that they're going to react? How do you expect that they're going to interact with the outside world as a whole? It systematically changes the way that students think about themselves. 
and it systematically changes the way that they look at the world. And I know that it's made to, that they are trying to sell this as something that's made to make people more inclusive. But in reality, what it's doing is the exact opposite. So those are just some of my thoughts on equity and equality in the classroom. I really very much would love to know what your thoughts are on this subject. If you're a public educator, please send me a message. Let me know what you've been seeing going on in your school district. Let me know if this is as big of a problem as I think it is, or if I'm just completely overreacting and this is only happening in a couple of schools in a couple of states and it's not really that big of a deal. I would love to start a conversation with you guys. Either send me a message or head over to one-roomeducation.com and check out the question of the week in association with this episode. Just in case you didn't know, every single episode of the State of Education podcast on the notes and references page over at one-roomeducation.com has a question of the week. If that relates to that week's episode. So if you'd like to start a conversation or join in the current conversation, head over to One Dash Room Education and check out the question of the week for the different podcast episodes. I'm really excited to see what you guys think. So those are my thoughts on equality versus equity in the education system. And with that, I would like to thank you so much for joining me today and bearing with me for this slightly out of the norm episode. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe and make sure that you're following this podcast on whichever platform you happen to be listening to me on. Please make sure to head over to one-roomeducation.com to get a full catalog of One Room Education content, as well as ways that you can support my work. While you're there, make sure to sign up to get notifications straight to your inbox every time I upload new content. And make sure that you go ahead and sign up for those notifications now, because the first 100 people to sign up for the email notifications will get free early bird access to every episode of the State of Education podcast, a full 24 hours before the rest of the general public. And that's only available to the first 100 people that sign up for the email notifications. After those 100 people have signed up, the early bird access will go behind the paywall forever. So make sure to sign up for your chance. If you would like some behind the scenes content, please head over and follow me on my socials. On Facebook, I'm at One Room Education, all one word. And on Instagram, I'm at One Room underscore education. You can also find episodes of the State of Education podcast on Rumble at One Room Education. I'll have that linked in the description for this episode if you haven't checked out Rumble yet. So you can head on over there and give it a give it a look-see. Again, thank you so much for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue to discuss the state of education.